We're going to be learning the Sefer HaMedrash Vahamasa and Parshas Toldos. There are two sections. The first is a drasha and the second is an halacha. Now, the drasha discusses mostly the Haftorah, but he begins with one question from the Parsha. Rashi quotes the Medrash that Yitzchak became blind in his old age because when Avraham was about to slaughter Yitzchak, the angels were crying and their tears fell into Yitzchak's eyes. And that's why he became blind blind later in his life. So obviously this is a very strange idea that needs to be explained. Now the Haftorah is from the beginning of the Navi Malachi and he is rebuking the Jewish people but there's a number of psukim that need to be explained. So he has all these strange sort of metaphorical or allegorical conversations with the Jewish people. He says that Hashem loves them and they say how does Hashem love us because Yaakov's brother is Esav. So he says that Hashem loves Yaakov and he hates Esav. And he's going to destroy the area, the land, the buildings of Esav. Then he continues that they're going to say Hashem is great beyond just the boundaries of the land of Israel. And then he says that the Kohanim are Boze Shemi, they're denigrating my name. And the people say, how are they denigrating Hashem's name? So he answers, Magishim al Mizbechi Lechem Megual. They bring disgusting bread on my altar. So the Jews now ask, how did we defile your altar? When you said that the altar of Hashem is disgusting. So this is a very strange conversation. If the Jews are bringing disgusting bread and saying that the shulchan is disgusting, why are they acting innocent and pretending that they don't know what they did wrong? And then he repeats that the Jews are denigrating the shulchan. And they say, here's someone that's tired and you cause it pain. So it's totally unclear what that last phrase means. So he's trying to explain the prophecy of the Navi Malachi and these strange conversations that he has back and forth with the Jews. So he begins with the Medrash that he quoted that when the angels cried at Akedas Yitzchak, the tears went into Yitzchak's eyes. And he asks a simple question. We always talk about Akedas Yitzchak being a test for Avraham. Even though Yitzchak was going to give his life, but in the Torah and in the davening and in Chazal, it refers to this as a test for Avraham. It was a bigger loss for him. So why in the Medrash is it focusing on Yitzchak? The tears of the angels affect Yitzchak as opposed to Avraham. So the Hamedrash Ramasa explains that even though the test of the Akedah was a terrible test to have to sacrifice his son, but that's only from our human perspective. When we look at the situation of someone losing their life, so that is a terrible terrible loss. But from the angel's perspective, so they see the world differently. They understand that physical life is not the end goal of our lives. It's our spiritual souls. So they understood that the Nisayon of the Akedah was not actually crushing. So from their spiritual perspective, this was not a terrible test. So that's why they did not cry for Avraham. He was giving his son's life, but the angels don't understand why that's a loss because they have no physical life to begin with. But they did cry for Yitzchak because Yitzchak didn't even hear the command to sacrifice himself. Avraham was told by Hashem to do so, but Yitzchak never heard it. So why 
why is he trusting Avraham? In fact, the Gemara itself raises this question. How could Yitzchak trust Avraham's prophecy when it goes against the laws of the Torah? And it answers, Navi Muhsak Shaini. Once we know that someone is actually a prophet, so then we trust them even if the prophecy seems strange. Now, there is another Gemara elsewhere which limits this idea, and it says that a prophet cannot change any law of the Torah that they want, only under specific circumstances. And he quotes that the Chasim Sofer explains that the problem here is because we don't want this to get out of hand, that all sorts of people are believing different prophets to violate all sorts of laws of the Torah. So this is a situation that could quickly get out of hand and lead to all sorts of violation of the Torah because people are gullible and there's a lot of tricksters and fraudsters out there who would use these rules in order to encourage people to violate the rules of the Torah as if they're prophets. So that's why we have to limit very much when we follow someone against the rules of halacha. But Yitzchak, who was so far from dishonesty, so he couldn't have even imagined people using these halachas and pretending to be prophets and telling people to violate the halacha when they shouldn't be doing so. So Yitzchak just fully accepted what his father told him. It didn't even occur to him to start questioning whether Avraham had actually heard this whether Avram was telling the truth. He did not come up with any of these potential issues. He fully accepted that Avram had heard this prophecy. So that's what impressed the angels. Not that Yitzchak was willing to give his life, but his tremendous honesty that he couldn't even imagine that perhaps this was not a true prophecy. Maybe Avram was making it up. He just immediately accepted that his father was telling him what he had heard from Hashem. Now, this is not a totally good character trait because we do unfortunately live in a world where there are a lot of dishonest people. So we can't just accept whatever anyone tells us. We have to be a little more discerning and we have to evaluate whether they're telling us the truth or not. So it's not a pure good to be as honest and gullible as Yitzchak because in the world we live in, we do need to be more suspicious and check that people are telling us the truth. And in fact, he points out that even Yitzchak later on in his life was fooled by Esav. So this same character trait of honesty was bad when it came to Esav, who was dishonest, and he was able to fool Yitzchak. Now, interestingly, the angels, even though they don't live in the physical world, but they are aware of the dishonesty that permeates our physical world. And this is based on a medrash, which the medrash Ramasa discussed earlier in Parshas Noach, that the angels oppose the creation of the world because they say that everyone's going to lie. So we see that the angels are well aware of how much dishonesty and fraud goes on in the world. So the angels are aware of it in a way that Yitzchak is not even aware of it. The angels do understand that there is a lot of dishonesty and that Yitzchak is not seeing that there are all sorts of dishonest people in the world. So that's what it means that they were crying. They were so moved by the fact that Yitzchak is such a person of honesty that he doesn't even realize that there's all sorts of dishonest people out there in the world. And he doesn't even question his father whether he actually got that prophecy or not. But says the Medrash, those 
same tears of the angels are what eventually led Yitzchak to believe his son Esav and to blind him, not physically, but metaphorically. Because Yitzchak was so honest and he was not suspicious of what people told him, so that's why he was blinded to how bad Esav was and he wanted to bless him. So that's the connection the Medrash is making between Akedas Yitzchak and Yitzchak wanting to bless Esav. In both of them, we see that Yitzchak is incredibly trusting. Now, says that Medrash Vamasa, the contrast with Yitzchak is the Jews in the times of Malachi. Here, they're not trusting at all. In fact, they're the other way. They're too suspicious. They're too smart for their own good, always questioning what the Navi is telling them. So he gives some background to understand the era of Malachi. There is a view in the Gemara in Megillah Tesvav Amad Aleph that Malachi is the same person as Ezra. Now, Ezra's message was that the Jews had become very assimilated. A lot of them had stopped living a life of Torah. And Ezra's job is to bring them back to fully living a life of Torah and following the rules of Halacha. So Ezra, in some ways, is like the second coming of Moshe. Moshe was the great leader who originally gave them the Torah and got the Jews started with a life of Torah. And now it's Ezra's job to bring that spirit back and to get the Jews to recommit to a life of Torah. Now, even though Ezra is getting them to go back to living a life of Torah, as opposed to Moshe, who brought down the Torah to begin with, but still, says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, Ezra's job is harder because Moshe had all sorts of miracles that he had performed. He took the Jews out of Egypt. He fed them the man in the desert. There were all sorts of incredible miracles which were going on at that time. So it was much easier now for Moshe to say, you have to now follow the rules of the Torah in the context of all these incredible miracles when they saw the hand of God. As opposed to Ezra, who's living in a period where there are not miracles. And many of the Jews are very comfortable. They're living in Bavel. It's not like the slavery in Egypt. They're living nice lives. They want to continue living in Bavel. Many of the Jews had intermarried. So the Jews are not that motivated to come back to a life of Torah. And now the period of prophecy is coming to an end and the period of open miracles is coming to an end. So Ezra has a much harder job to bring the Jews back to the Torah than Moshe had initially giving them a life of Torah. And obviously the Hamedr Shah is comparing all this to his generation. And it's also similar in our times that the Jews need to recommit to a life of Torah, but it's much more difficult because people are comfortable. They're assimilated. There's no immediate motivation to go back to living a life of Torah. And there's also no prophecy and open miracles. So that's why Malachi, who's Ezra, when he rebukes the Jewish people, so they respond to him because they don't want to necessarily follow his guidance. So what does he respond? So the Hamedrash Vamasa explains based on what he said in Parshas Lech Lecha. There is a belief in Judaism that the Jews are the chosen people. But the Hamedrash Vamasa keeps repeating this idea that it doesn't mean that the Jews are going to benefit from other people. They're better than the rest of the world and they deserve more wealth or power. It means precisely the opposite. That the Jews have a mission to serve mankind and to spread knowledge of Hashem and proper 
proper beliefs. So the Jews were given a task that they now have to perform. So it's not about benefiting the Jews. It's about the Jews working hard to do their mission. And this is one of Rabbi Chesko Lipschitz's main themes. So now as long as the Jews understood their mission and they were trying to spread the knowledge of Hashem and the Torah, so things were good and they were able to live peacefully. But once they started to sin, then the Yetzirah convinced them that why should they have this terrible, burdensome task to always be teaching the world about Hashem? Why can't they just live a regular life? So that's when they started to sin and they ended up going into exile. But even though the Jews had sinned and went into exile, Hashem did a great kindness for the Jews, which is that he did not allow the land of Israel to be settled. It did not allow other people to live on the land and be able to sustain themselves. And this was true historically. Whenever the Jews were not living in Israel, the land was empty. There were not many people living there. So Hashem did this in order to illustrate that the only reason he had given Israel so much success agriculturally was only for the benefit of the Jews. But once the Jews were not able to live there because they sinned, so the land itself was going to be desolate. It was not going to be inhabited by other people to illustrate that the Jews have this continuing mission to be the chosen people, to spread the word of Hashem. And until they come back, the land is going to remain desolate. So that's why no one else was ever able to settle on the land and to take hold of it, which is what happens with every other nation when they get exiled. So someone else moves into the land and starts living there. But that never happened in Israel because it was being preserved for when the Jews would come back. So with this, he explains very nicely a comment in the Gemara. It says that the Jews were exiled because they did not make the blessing on the Torah before they studied. They did not make Birkas Torah. So all the commentators want to understand, what does this mean? Because they skipped that blessing, they ended up being exiled. It seems disproportionate. So the Hamedrish Vahamasa explains based on his approach. Because in that bracha we say, that the Jews were the chosen people. So when the Jews stopped saying that bracha means they stopped believing that they were the chosen people and had a mission. They just wanted to be like everybody else. So that's why they got exiled. Because they were no longer acting like the chosen people. But as he just said, even though they were exiled, they did not lose their status as the chosen people. And the proof for that is because the land of Israel could never be settled when the Jews were in exile. So from that, we see that they are still the chosen people, even in exile. And when they're ready to resume that status and to continue functioning as the chosen people, spreading knowledge of the Torah and Hashem, so then they'll come back to Israel. So that's the message that Ezra slash Malachi is trying to give the Jewish people that they are still the chosen people and they need to resume their task, their mission in the world. So this now explains the conversation that Malachi has with the Jewish people. He says to them, Hashem still loves you, even though you were exiled and it looks like things are terrible, but Hashem still loves you, meaning you're still the chosen people. You're still the people that are tasked with the mission of spreading knowledge of Hashem. 
So now again, the Jews at this time are the opposite of Yitzchak. They're totally not trusting. They're suspicious even of a well-known Navi and leader like Ezra slash Malachi. So that's why they respond and argue with whatever he says. So they say to him, why should we consider ourselves better than Esav? Yaakov and Esav are brothers, so what makes us any better than them? Meaning they don't understand that the point of the chosen people is to do a mission. They think it's about being better than other people. So they ask, why should we consider ourselves better than them? Says the Navi Malachi, I'll prove it to you. Because when Hashem punished Esav, he destroyed their land and he made it impossible for them to live on it, even though they were still living there. As opposed to the Jews, where he exiled you from your land, but he's going to bring you back and rebuild your land. So you see that Hashem treats you differently. He treats you like the chosen people, even after you sin, as opposed to Esav, where he just destroys the land and makes it uninhabitable while they're still living on it. So this was a very powerful argument for Ezra to make. He doesn't have prophecies. He does not have miracles. He does not have slavery in Egypt and the Exodus to inspire the Jews to live a life of Torah. But this is a powerful argument because it appeals to a certain nationalism, a spiritual nationalism, that the Jews still have a great destiny and something to do in the world. And they should embrace their role and not consider themselves just just like everybody else with nothing special to accomplish, but they should understand this special role and mission that they've been given. Now, the Kohanim have a special role to play in this whole resurgence of Judaism because they are the leaders of the Jewish people. They are going to be the ones serving in the Beis HaMikdash. They're going to devote their whole lives now to the service of Hashem, and they don't have the same level Beis HaMikdash that existed in the first Beis Mikdash. The second Beis Mikdash does not have the miracles, it does not have the prophecy, it does not have the same status as the first Beis Mikdash. So Ezra makes a special appeal to the Kohanim as is mentioned in the Psukim to ask them to lead this process and the Kohanim agree. But now something unfortunate happens. The Gemara describes how the people didn't really want to support the Kohanim. They didn't want to give them the miser, the tithes. So they would do all sorts of of tricks with the produce to not be obligated to give the miser, the tax to the Kohanim to support the Kohanim. So the status of the Kohanim was very low. The people did not have a lot of respect for the Kohanim and for the service they were doing. So the Kohanim were offended by this. And Rabbi Chesko Lipshit says a tremendous insight that this was the wrong reaction. The Kohanim should not have taken this personally and stopped doing their work. They should have continued on and tried their hardest to spread their message even though the people were not that receptive and the people were not supporting them and they felt disrespected, but they still had a lot they could have accomplished if they had put their whole heart into it. A little bit of hard work goes a long way, even if it seems like the odds are stacked against you. So the Kohanim's reaction was the wrong reaction. They should have continued to try their hardest and instead they sort of gave up and they started blaming the people and they started letting out their frustration with the people. 
So this brilliantly explains the conversation that Malachi has. He's not talking to the Jewish people. He's arguing with the Kohanim. And the Kohanim are the ones saying, Shulchan Hashem Megual, that the Shulchan of Hashem is being disrespected. But it's not that they disrespect it. They are blaming the Jewish people. They're upset with them for disrespecting the Shulchan of Hashem, meaning what the Kohanim are trying to do, their service. So that's why Malachi says, Lachem ha-kohanim, you kohanim are boze shemi. You are denigrating Hashem because instead of doing what you're supposed to be doing, all you do is make excuses and blame the Jewish people. So that's why the Kohanim respond, how did we denigrate Hashem? Because they genuinely don't understand. They thought that they were standing up for the honor of Hashem. So to that, the Navi tells them, because by not doing what you're supposed to be doing and by just making excuses, it's like someone whose house is on fire and all they're doing is yelling, oh no, there's a fire. But they're not actually pouring water and trying to put it out. So you Kohanim should be doing more to better the situation instead of just complaining that the Jews don't respect the service in the Beisam Mikdash. So that's what the phrase at the end means that the Kohanim are saying, that the Jews are weak, but they are also. They are the ones that are really causing the problems because they're not doing their part to better the situation. So Malachi's point to the Kohanim is that they're just going about doing the technicalities of bringing the sacrifices. They're just doing it by rote, but they're not putting their all into it, giving it their energy and their passion, which would make an actual difference to the Jewish people at large and get them back to the service of Hashem and to doing their mission. So this is a very brilliant explanation of the back and forth between Malachi and the Kohanim. And it's a very good lesson for all of us that very often things are not easy and it seems like people don't respect our message, but the job is not to just complain about it. Our job is to continue going and to give it our all even if it doesn't seem like we're getting the feedback that we want, but the more we push, the more we give to it, the more successful we eventually will be. And now he ends this piece with an incredible few paragraphs about the split between Yaakov and Esav, and you really get a feel for Rabbi Chezkel Lipschitz's humanism, his universalism, his love of mankind. He says that Yitzchak was fooled into thinking that Esav was a good guy. But nowadays, there are many Jews who are not fooled, but the opposite, because they think they're so smart, so they convince themselves that there should be no difference between Yaakov and Esav. And says Rabbi Chazko Lipschitz, V'amnam, Mekavim umaminim anachnu kiyesh yom v'nafal hamasach hazeh be'emes. We hope and believe that a day is going to come when this separation between Yaakov and Esav is going to end. V'yehavchu kol ha'amim safa brura, and all of the nations are going to be honest. Aval ad shiapuach hayom v'yizdakiku halavavos, but until that day comes, then there does have to be a separation. So he does hope that eventually all the nations are going to follow the true path of Judaism but until then the Jews do need to live in their own separate way and to promote the beliefs of Judaism.
And he illustrates this with the story of Rivka, that she had a fetus who used to kick when she passed by a shul, and he used to kick when she passed by in Avodah Zarah. So she was very concerned, what kind of fetus am I carrying that he wants to both serve Avodah Zarah as well as Hashem? How can this be? Rivka was very upset, and he explains that she thought, maybe it's my genes, because I come from a family of idolaters, so maybe I I'm the one that gave this baby the genes of Avodah Zarah and Yitzchak gave him the genes of Torah and that's why he's totally confused. But Rivka is very upset about this situation that there's one fetus who wants to do both Avodah Zarah and study Torah. So then she goes and she's told that she has two children. There's twins. And one of them is an idolater and one of them will live a life of Torah. And this comforts her. She doesn't say, oh no, I have an idolater in me. She's comforted to know that at least there are two sons and it's not one who's confused. So we see from here that until the other nations live a life of Torah, it's better to be separate. We can't have a confused nation that's going down the road both of Torah and idolatry. But still, says Rabbi Chazka Lipschitz, as he keeps repeating over and over, This separation, according to the Torah, is only on a religious level. But when it comes to living in society with other people and communal government-type projects, having to do with inhabiting the world, so then, then the message of Judaism is love and friendship and brotherliness with all of creation. So according to Rabbi Chazka Lipschitz, the split is only on a religious level, not in terms of society or communities. But says Rabbi Chazka Lipschitz, unfortunately, it was the side of Esav who in earlier generations understood the split with Yaakov to be much more drastic in all ways. The sinas olam pagash Yaakov bedarko mitziro shal esav midor dor ubechol artsos nidudo. And Yaakov always met the hatred of Esav in whatever time and place Yaakov showed up in. So it was from the side of Esav that the hatred and the split came towards the Jewish people. So he blames the other side for having created these bad relationships between the Jews and non-Jews. And he adds a message that many great rabbis have said, that there were Jews who thought that this anti-Semitism was a result of the Jewish religion. So they figure that there's a simple solution to this. If they are willing to abandon a life of halacha and living according to the Torah, so then the non-Jews won't hate them and there won't be any further anti-Semitism. But says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, as many have pointed out, that the more Jews tried to abandon a life of Torah and Judaism, in fact, 
the opposite occurred. We see historically that there was more anti-Semitism and not less. So this approach is bound to fail. Making the Jews more like the non-Jews is not going to solve the problem of anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitism is a fact that the Jewish people live with. And he ends this piece with his wish that's always underlying a lot of his pieces. The Jews live with faith. That a day will come when the boys, Yaakov and Esav, will stop fighting. There will no longer be war or fighting. So the Jews continue to pray and hope for a day when there will be peace. But until that time, each person should follow their own religion and worship their own God. But we will never abandon the flag of the Jewish people. We're not going to switch our culture for other cultures. Because compromising our religion is not going to gain us anything. We're going to continue to follow and trust in our own God. So this is an amazing end to this speech. And it gives us a real feel for the vision that Rabbi Yechezkel Lipschitz has. It's a very modern vision where the Jews don't look down on other people. They're not disinterested in the non-Jewish world, but quite the opposite. The Jews are very much focused on spreading their message of peace and tolerance and worshiping Hashem to the whole world. But the Jews cannot give up their own religion in the meantime, they have to continue to follow the laws and the way of life of Judaism and the Torah, and that will bring eventual success with it. That will bring the end of anti-Semitism, and it will bring the whole world to understanding the proper beliefs in Hashem. So this is a very beautiful vision, and of course, we continue to pray for this vision in a very difficult time that we're going through right now. And shortly after Abichezkel Lipschitz came one of the worst calamities in Jewish history, which was the Holocaust. So many of the ideas that he's discussing both help us to frame and understand Jewish history as well as what we're trying to work towards in the future. Now, the halacha section explains mitzvah habab avera when someone does a mitzvah through doing an avera. So this is based on the haftorah. The Gemara in Sukkah derives from the haftorah that mitzvah habab avera, let's say someone steals a lulav to do the mitzvah of lulav, that's invalid. Now, Tosvos writes that there is a view that this is a deoraisa level principle. So minha Torah, according to Torah law, such a mitzvah is invalid. So based on this, the Chassam Sofer has a question, why is there another derivation of karbano veloha gazel? The Gemara derives that you cannot steal an animal for a sacrifice. Why do we need a separate proof text for that? Why is it not included in the general principle of mitzvah babavera is disqualified? So the Medrash Vamase goes through a whole long convoluted discussion of Mitzvah Baba Avera, and he talks about all sorts of possible exceptions and when they would apply. He has an interesting idea, which is he differentiates between two different types of sins. So let's say someone uses wheat, which is tevel, they didn't take truma and miser, and they make matzah from that. So that's a form of prohibited matzah, and they cannot use it for the mitzvah at the Seder. But then there's another type of prohibited matzah, which is stolen matzah. 
So the Hamedrash Vamasa differentiates between these two types of sins because the matzah of tevel is inherently prohibited. So there is an inherent problem in the matzah itself. As opposed to the stolen matzah, where there's no problem with the matzah itself, it just doesn't belong to this person. If it was with the owner, it would be fine matzah. It's just that this person does not own it. So the real problem is with the person who's eating the matzah. So based on that, he suggests that when it comes to matzah of tevel, whether the person is using it intentionally or accidentally, shogeg or mezid, in all cases, it's a mitzvah babavera. As opposed to stolen matzah, where it's only mazid, if the person knows that it's stolen and they intentionally are using stolen matzah. But if it's shogeg, it's unintentional, they don't realize that this matzah was stolen, then they could theoretically use the matzah because there's no problem with the matzah itself and this person doesn't realize that they're doing something wrong. So there's no real problem with the person. So that's his suggestion, that stolen matzah or other mitzvahs, if they're used bishogeg, it's a mistake, then one did fulfill the mitzvah. So he discusses all these different types of cases, but his suggestion to answer the Chassam Sofer's basic question is that there is a distinction between other mitzvahs versus sacrifices. When it comes to a karban, so there it has to be an elevated object because it's being offered to Hashem as a opposed to other mitzvah objects which are not being offered to Hashem. So there are some potential leniencies even if there's something wrong with the object like it's stolen or there's some prohibition on the object. As opposed to karbanos where the animal really has to be a perfect animal if there's anything wrong with it. So we're more strict that it cannot be used as a karban. So that's his suggestion and that would answer the question of the Chasim Sofer. And based on that, he reads the flow of the Pesukim in the Haftorah that it's all centering around this issue that a carbon needs to be on a higher level.